Greetings. Welcome to this episode of the Freedom Plow Podcast. My name is Dr. Sekou Franklin, and this podcast series is hosted by the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. In this episode, we explore African Americans and the politics of immigration, especially in the southern part of the United States. We have two guests. Dr. Niambi Carter is author of the recently published book, American While Black, African Americans, Immigration, and the Limits of Citizenship. She is an assistant professor at Howard University in the Department of Political Science. Also joining the discussion is Dr. Jennifer Jones, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is the author of the new book, The Browning of the New South. This podcast was recorded in August of 2019. The guests make reference to two important events in August, the mass shooting of Latino residents by a white nationalist in El Paso, Texas, and the raid at food processing plants in central Mississippi by federal law enforcement officials that resulted in a mass arrest of 680 people. General, what brought you to this work on immigration? Uh, let's start with you, Niambi. Um, the main thing uh, that brought me to this topic was really graduate school. I was working with uh, Dr. Paula McLean um, with a number of other graduate students um, on sort of black-Latino relations in Durham. And that's what sort of got me interested in the area, you know, as a new graduate student. I was kind of all over the place. But this was an area that I was attracted to because I thought that most of the literature that was on the topic just didn't speak to me. I know that sounds kind of hokey, but it just felt like um, this area required a lot more theorizing, at least on the black side of it. How about you, Jennifer? Uh, similarly, I came to the topic in graduate school. For me, it was more about a, an extension of thinking about race-making practices. So my MA thesis work and my undergraduate work was thinking about uh, Black Cubans in and uh, Black identity in Latin America. And then my master's thesis work was thinking about multiracials. Um, and I wanted to build a dissertation project that would help me understand a different angle on race-making race projects. Um, and so I came to my particular study uh, in the book because I was interested in a subpopulation of black Mexican migrants that had settled in North Carolina, thinking that that would create a, a really interesting natural experiment in thinking about how uh, group relations form and the impact of racial identity and shaping those relations. It turned out that the project ended up being a lot more about racial politics and the experiences on the ground than it did about phenotype. Um, but immigration has been like a really interesting way to understand sort of the relationship between race and politics and racial formation. So in, in general, both of you studied immigration in the South and, and me being a person who grew up in the West Coast, um, in the Bay Area, um, where there's a vibrant immigrant community. Um, typically, but now living in the South myself, uh, typically we don't think of the South as a hotbed of, of uh, migra for migration, particularly from uh, Latin, uh, Latin America. So describe the changing landscape of immigration um, particularly in the South, what are we seeing in terms of um, kind of 21st century um, uh, Southern landscapes in terms of the new influx of immigrants? Well, um, I, I mean, I think the biggest probably change is that this is happening in a Southern context. So the idea that the South didn't have any immigration, I think, is probably um, not too far stretched, given the fact that uh, I think most early immigrants, I'm talking about 19th um, and into the 20th century, found that place to be inhospitable. But it became, in part, a new immigrant gateway, that's the language that people like to employ, because of employment practices in the South. So I think one of the main I don't know if it's a difference. I mean, I think we saw this with the Chinese uh, previously with the railroads, but we see in poultry, we see in construction, we see in textile industries a pulling, right, of immigrants into those spaces. 
Um, and it's not just the South, it's also the Midwest. So I think that might be, um, is that kind of what you're getting at, is that um, this is, these are places that have not had long histories of immigration, um, but these are places that were growing in particular ways um, in, in their industries, were growing in particular ways, and um, they wanted a labor force that they could exploit, I mean, quite frankly. Um, and and so I would say one of the, the main mechanisms, at least, or one of the differences in this 21st century is sort of the employer-led um, movement towards um more immigrant labor, but also, you know, as you have um, traditional gateways like Los Angeles and Miami and other places becoming more expensive, but also less hospitable, you find people moving, I think, further away from the clutches of ICE um, and trying to avoid um, deportation uh, and capture. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with everything that Nambi said. I think that the changes that we see well, first, I would say that probably the social science literature has not really done a lot of work on the South as a region until uh, the last couple of decades. So in part, we haven't been paying much attention um, since sort of the post-slavery period as to what's going on. Uh, but the immigration from Latin America in particular, I think, has been a post um, a kind of 1990s turn of the century story. So. Um, many of the things that Naomi mentioned, that sort of economic expansion, growth in a lot of industries, uh, conditions in the states that were uh, didn't require unions, um, but also didn't have a lot of laws on the books that made it difficult for undocumented migrants in particular to settle in those states, meant that from 1990 to 2000, we saw sort of across the region states um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling their population of Latin American origin migrants. And that pattern has leveled off a little bit, but continued to expand. Um, at the same time that we see growth also in professional industry. So we've seen a reverse migration of lots of folks, um, both white and black, to the South, in part because of those job opportunities as well, as well as lower cost of living and other kinds of issues perhaps fleeing violence in urban locales. So there's been a lot of pull to the region over the last couple of decades that has really kind of reconfigured the demographics of the place. So why is this issue important for African-Americans? And Jennifer, I was particularly struck by your experiences in Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, living, in, living in a region of Mexico where there was a, a large population of enslaved Africans. Um, and so your experience studying particularly Mexican immigrants in the United States was shaped by that experience living in Mexico. So why is this issue important for African-Americans um, in terms of um, the politics of immigration? You, sorry, I think there's quite a few different questions wrapped up there. So uh, yes, I spent four months in Mexico in a heavily Afro-descended region of Mexico, which is one of those things that people may not know a lot about because Mexico has only recently um, recognized the region and begun to count Afro-descendants in its census for the first time, both in a regional test and now uh, they'll do a full count in 2020. Um, and so I thought, you know, there are different ways in which people conceive of race and identity and the people don't come to the United States as a blank slate. Um, and so what was interesting about black Mexicans, though it didn't really make it into the book, um, though I've written about it in other places, is that they were probably unsurprisingly facing a lot of the same kind of discrimination that we face here in the U.S. in that they were being excluded from state policies, they weren't being counted, they weren't being identified, there was a lot of interpersonal discrimination. Um, and so when people were coming to the U.S., it wasn't necessarily that they had no exposure to blackness, but there was a different kind of understanding about black Americanness relative to black Mexicanness. And some of that had to do with politics. There, they had an understanding that there was a such thing as uh, black leadership and black organizers. They had heard about people like Obama and so forth. Um, and so in the U.S. context, when you had new immigrants settling and they were beginning to face 
some of the discrimination that had existed for a long time in other places, but was new to the South as a result of that new increasing immigration, they looked to the black community as a way to make sense of those experiences because um, they had come to understand that blacks had faced similar discrimination, but also had engaged in activism to push back against it. And so one of the ways in which I think this is important for African-Americans to understand is that I think it creates an opportunity for new kinds of political engagement. So one, that Latinos in the U.S., especially newcomers today, are facing a situation in which they can't help but understand themselves as raced and in a context of white supremacy, not unlike some of the things that Naomi has pointed out. And that means a lot, right? Having a shared status is very different than the sort of upward mobility assimilation trajectories of the past. Um, it means that people are thinking about this as sort of discrimination and political engagement. And because of the demographic change, that also means that there are political opportunities. So you have places like Charlotte, North Carolina, which is now a majority minority community that is 35% black and 13% Latino. And that creates new opportunities to build political alliances that may actually result in actual substantive change. You can shift the city council, you can shift investments in shared institutions, you can change the discourse. Um, and so I think for uh, black people who I think have had an experience where immigrants have often been positioned as a kind of wedge between blacks and whites, there has been a kind of reconfiguration in a lot of places, and I would argue at the national level, to put immigrants, especially those from Latin America, alongside black folks as a way to denigrate them, but that might actually be a political opportunity for black people. And Naomi, why is this issue important for African Americans? I remember reading in your book this this you start out with really a story of this of this tension that occurs um, around workplace issues between African Americans and Latinos, I believe, and and then you weave in um, um, how white supremacy oftentimes structures black attitudes towards immigration. So why is this why is this issue important for African Americans? Well, I mean, I think what I'm really trying to do in this book is center black people in this conversation. So I think there's often a narrative that black people are either unexperienced or inexperienced or unaware, right, of immigration. And what I'm trying to do is say that black people are very aware of immigration, but like Jennifer, they think about immigration in very particular kinds of ways. And part of that way I argue, especially in a place like the South, but in the U.S., right? I mean, I feel like the United States is a white supremacist country, regardless of region, right? I think we southern southernize. I know that's not a, a word, but we really make this a southern story when I think it's a race story and it's a white supremacy story. And so often what I found in my work is that white, I mean, black people, excuse me, use immigration as sort of a bellwether, right? So because immigrants are often treated as sort of better than, or at least that's how they've traditionally um, been treated, um, that, you know, blacks might be a little wary or a little hostile. And what I'm trying to argue is that blacks actually do have a very deep engagement with immigration. Um, and in fact, they were the first immigrants in their minds, right, in terms of how they talked about immigration in their own communities, because immigration was actually vital to certain communities of black folks um, at a time. And I actually consider sort of domestic migration immigration, right, because black people were essentially moving from places where they were legally enslaved to places where enslavement um, was not an obstacle anymore, even though citizenship was still denied. And so we domesticate, right, these stories uh, of forced migration, right, um, because they weren't necessarily going to um, international uh, locations, even though, um, as I, I, I talk about in the book, you know, blacks really did talk a lot about where they could go in the world to experience freedom. So for me, um, this question, this topic, is a lot older than we give it credit for, particularly in black communities. And my sort of, I think, more particular story is not about, you know, black people not liking immigrants or being afraid, even though that's part of it, right? It's that black people understand how white supremacy operates and keeps 
all of us, right, um, marginalized communities outside of the family of citizenship. And so because of that, immigration is really a vehicle to express that frustration and express that discontent. And, yeah, some of the language may be impolitic, right, as you rightly pointed out. There is this tension, particularly around things like working opportunities and things like that. But what I argue is that black folks keep coming back to is that, you know, the sort of immigrant is the low-hanging fruit here. It's really about a set of practices, institutionalized practices, that harm all of us. So sort of going after immigrants and spending that kind of organizing energies um, to go after immigrants and single them out really um, turn out to be losers for black people, and they don't pursue those avenues. I hope that was a answer to your question. It is. And, and one thing, um, one argument that one may make is that um, the critique about white supremacy and institutional racism um, is an argument made by um, civil rights groups, uh, black political leaders, and who want to develop alliances, constructive alliances, and really do believe in social justice and and um, of all people versus, say, for example, uh, rank-and-file blacks who may hold more nativist viewpoints regarding immigration. Do you see that division existing um, between so-called black leadership I'm thinking about the NACP, for example, or the Congressional Black Caucus regarding immigration versus um, rank and file African Americans who um, who are who are have these complicated experience with, with immigrate immigrants and work and other kind of settings. Is is that to me or uh, uh, Jennifer or or, or Niambi? But Niambi, I'll I'll let you answer this first. I guess I'm trying to get oh, okay. a that that are are. Is black leadership taking a different position regarding undocumented me, versus, say, rank-and-file, everyday black folks? So my book doesn't look at black elites. Um, um, specifically, my book does look at rank-and-file black folks. Um, I will say that to the extent that people hold the attitude, they're not behaving in ways that necessarily comport with those attitudes. And I would say the blacks are deeply ambivalent right, about the issue. So on the one hand, they don't want to see, at least in my experience, from my research, see the numbers of immigrants uh, vastly increased, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, they don't think that it is fair to deport people, right, or to not create a, a way for people to become citizens, right? And that's across not just what the research I've done in the book, but also um, a recent article I did with um, Tyson King Meadows. So people are of two minds about this issue. Now, I think black elites, I mean, we did this work together um, with Pearl, right, are a little bit different because I think what motivates elites may not necessarily be what motivates rank-and-file folks. But to the extent that the behavior aligns, um, I don't see um, any real differences um, because even though we know that uh, black leadership has pretty much been um, on the side of immigrant groups for the most part, right, we know that there are historical moments when that wasn't necessarily a certainty, right? Mm -hmm. A. Philip Randolph had real concerns about the use of Filipino immigrant labor, right, during the Pullman Porter strike. But I think having those reservations and expressing those is different than saying, and we're going to support you know, candidates or organizations that go after these same groups of people. Jennifer, do you have an, uh, an assessment of that? Yeah, I mean, I, so my book is certainly more from the perspective of Latino migrants, though I certainly do community ethnography and talk to a lot of folks on the ground and have done some work since. I definitely have more engagement with Black elites, and I would say that you're right that there is a shift towards supporting immigrants and immigration issues, and that's broadly conceived as within the purview of human rights issues, racial justice is issues, civil rights issues. Um, and I mean this like in the contemporary moment in the sort of post 2005 and to today period, um, that, that that increase has continued in part because of the ways in which immigrants have been 
racialized and demonized and put under threat through these political means in terms of access to education, residency, driver's licenses, employment, and such. Um, in terms of whether this is shared by the rank and file, in my assessment, trying to understand whether a group of people as diverse as a sort of racial category think of the same mind is always complicated. I, I think there's probably a lot of disagreement. And then when we start to break it down by region and municipality, um, or even other categories like gender, women, uh, black women tend to be much more progressive on issues across the board than black men. Um, then we see some divergence. But if I'm to generalize, I would say the evidence seems to suggest that black people in general are very positive on immigration policy issues, probably for a lot of the same reasons um, that Niambi pointed out, right? The idea that any effort to attack immigrants is a, is a race war. It's a kind of racial politics. And it's not really about immigrants. It's about voting against someone's initiatives that's sort of upholding white supremacy. So for example, um, uh, attitude poll that was conducted in the midterms for the NAACP by Latino Decisions and the African American Research Collective found that black voters were the most um, intolerant of family separation policies in, in this uh, biracial group. And that includes more intolerance than uh, Latinos themselves. And wow. so I think there is a very clear statement in terms of immigration policy. Integration and I would say this. Sorry, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry, Jennifer. No, and I would say, I mean, and, and this is found not just in that Latino decision study. I mean, this mm -hmm. has been found in the AAPI research. I mean, I'm sorry, in the CMPS uh, data as well. Blacks tend to be more liberal. The collaborative multiracial um, survey out of, um, out of U UCLA. Right. Um, that data also seems to find similar results that Jennifer was just citing from Latino decisions, is that black people tend to be more liberal than anybody on these same immigration policies, even though, right, literature would suggest it's against their interests, right, to say so or, yeah. or to be so in favor. And so I think that attitudinal um, dimension is, is one that has been holding even historically, um, if you look at sort of what the black press and others were saying at the time, of course, that's not exactly the same type of data. But if you look at that as an important sort of read on what that community might have been feeling in these different eras of immigration, whether it be Asian or Irish or others, um, is that, you know, um, blacks have been pro-immigrant, if we can call it that. I don't necessarily think it's that. I think it's more anti-white supremacy mm -hmm. um, than pro-immigrant. And I think that's an important distinction that sometimes doesn't bear out. Yeah, and I think that's literature. something that's important in both of our work and a, and a lot of the new work that's coming out is I think that race has been insufficiently theorized and trying to understand attitudes towards immigrants. And that doesn't mean categorizing people and leaving it alone, but rather the ways in which people understand and make sense of race and racial systems to make decisions. And so whether or not you feel that you're in a labor market competition with someone doesn't necessarily mean that you would turn to white supremacist systems to solve the problem. Um, and so I think that there's also other things that matter on the ground, right? Are people in labor market competition? That's true in a lot of places, but not everywhere. So in Winston-Salem, where I did my research, most of the black people in that community are sort of middle class um, and the undocumented immigrants settling in are much more sort of working class um, or poor. And so the kinds of issues that come up in the labor market are not nearly as pronounced as they might be in another kind of city. And so I think the economic conditions matter a lot in terms of the sort of attitudes that people have. I also think there's a generational shift that happens. Latinos are much more likely to settle into minority neighborhoods. And I think at first that can create some uh, discomfort and displacement. Um, but in the second generation where people have grown up in those same communities, in those same schools, talking about their shared lives, uh, there can be a shift. And so recent work that's being done on South LA suggests this pattern, right? That in the 90s, there was a lot of conflict 
But today, those kids who were teenagers in the 90s or uh, in elementary school who have grown up in a Black-Brown community have a sense of shared politics and identity. And so I think we also have to keep in mind that change can happen in a number of ways. It can happen because of shifts in sort of the local community. It can also happen because of sort of broad scale political shifts, like the sort of Trumpist language and discourse and policy that we're seeing today. Um, so I feel like that's a long way of saying, I'm not exactly sure what people on the ground think as a whole, and I think it's varied, but I also don't think that their attitudes towards their neighbors are static, nor do they necessarily imply that they are hostile towards immigration policy that's more integrative in general. And Jennifer, you seem to describe um, in some of your research that um, when demographic panic set in, mm -hmm. um, that, at, that Latinos uh, seem to come closer, be much more receptive to alliances with, with African-Americans. Um, is, is that what you're finding out? Yeah, so the way that I understand it is demographic panics usually come from, you know, white populations. Um, they're kind of the last to know <laughs> when people have moved in in large numbers because they've settled largely in minority communities. And so it's not until they hit a kind of critical mass that you see a kind of panic, but it happens quickly. And it's usually accompanied by a policy shift as well. So you know, we saw immigration really ramped up in the 1990s, but it wasn't until 2005 or six that you started to see discourse at the state level um, or policy changes around immigration issues. And very quickly, you started seeing partnerships with ICE, um, removing access to uh, state benefits, um, efforts to remove immigrants from schools and access to healthcare. Um, you took away their driver's licenses, which as you know, in the South, this can be a real problem for you to be able to do anything. Um, so that kind of shift changed the way that people understood themselves, right? Because discrimination is not about a, a sort of human capital problem. It's about people perceiving you as a group in a problematic way. And so these were people who had been living in a place for 10 years and then suddenly we're being told they don't belong. And that was very clearly for them about race and racism. And so those demographic panics sort of translated into a shift in understanding of self and pushed Latinos to sort of rethink their own identities and racialization. And, and both of you, given that you've studied immigration in the South, particularly um, Latino immigrants, are you finding out that uh, as Southern lawmakers advance more restrictionist policies, more anti-immigration policies, that um, some longtime immigrants are, are, are moving out of the South, they're being pushed out, or are you finding that notwithstanding the restrictionist policies that, that Latino immigrants are, are there to stay? Well, I mean, I don't necessarily study people's migration patterns relative to the law, right? Mm -hmm. My work is very clearly about black public opinion on immigration, right? However, I mean, I think part of the issue in any of these spaces, right, is that people start to build communities and families. And so, yes, the law may become harsh and people risk, you know, detention and capture. And yes, that may be for some younger people who may be less attached, um, moving to the next locale that may be um, less in favor of restriction um, may become more of a possibility. But as people have children, as people devise institutions like so, uh, social clubs and um, networks, I think that moving becomes less likely. Um, because people do see themselves as being attached to a space and to a place, in many cases, are raising American citizens. Um, even for folks who are in mixed status households and communities, which is not uncommon, um, I think the idea of just moving for many is just not something um, that's practical um, or even logistically possible. Um, given perhaps their, their relationships in these spaces. Okay. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, my data is a little bit more anecdotal as well, um, in part because it's really difficult to track the right. impact of policy in this way. Um, but my sense is that people have a tendency to go underground rather than leave. So they are less likely to, they'll stop participating in things like church and organizations that they're a member of will stop picking up their children at school, those sorts of things. Um, but they are less likely to move, at least not a far distance. There's some like within region mobility, people may move to a different municipality, um, but less likely to leave the region altogether in part for the, all of the reasons Yami mentioned. They have citizen children. I mean, we saw in the raids in Mississippi, there were, you know, hundreds of children who are citizen children who are born in the U.S. I mean, born in the U.S., they don't know anything else. So it's kind of a complicated thing to suggest that they somehow return to Latin America. That might not be an option. The prospects may be much worse where they came from than the risk of sticking around. Um, and, you know, as threatening as deportation is, it's not quite the same as violence. So I'm not really sure what the event, the effects of something like El Paso will have. That's a very different kind of threat. Um, but my sense is that people are also taking a page from organizing in their community, in their state, which is, you know, you can't scare me out of town. Um, I have a, I have a member of this community and I'm going to claim a stake and a right to be here. And so I think in, in fact, in that second generation, you're seeing much more and 1.5 generation, much more resistance to efforts to deport than, um, than moving away. So I don't think we're seeing a significant drop in number, certainly, um, but the leveling out may be due in part to that threat, I, but it's hard to know at this stage. In my last five minutes, um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, um, that relate to organizing and particular grassroots activism. Um, what are the policy areas that you see um, that African-Americans and Latinos um, uh, can organize around together? Um, and I'm thinking just as an example that um, on issues related to uh, uh, policing, for example, or what you're finding on in some places is that as jails depopulate, um, those same jails are being filled with um, detainees, immigrant detainees. So some of the criminal justice advocates, for example, who are organizing around incarceration issues are shifting their focus to um, incarceration, particularly around immigration detainment. Um, so what are some of the areas, education, uh, labor, um, that, that you're finding uh, receptivity, particularly among African-Americans, to organizing in concert with with immigrants and new Americans? So, so I would say, I, I think there's been movement in a lot of different areas, certainly around uh, union organizing. It's always been difficult to organize in the South, um, but some of the few unions that have emerged over the past several years have been through coalitional efforts of uh, African-Americans and Latinos, especially in poultry processing plants. Um, and that has been really important for people in those states. Um, the Smithfield plant, for example, was one really surprising union effort. Uh, there had been efforts to suppress that union activity for years, and they finally were able to get a union. So that's happening. Uh, Smithfield uh, processing plants, they process... Um, Okay. Me, and it's mostly black and Latino workers, almost entirely so, um, excluding management. And for a long time, uh, efforts to unionize had been suppressed and they, they formed a union. Um, and a lot of the organizing around immigrant rights in the South has come out of union organizing. I think among the youth, one of the things that's most interesting to me is a sanctuary for all movement. So this question that you raised about mass incarceration has been collaborations through groups like Not One More Deportation and Black Lives Matter to move the sanctuary movement in a broader direction, that it's not just sanctuary from deportation, but sanctuary from surveillance and policing, um, prison guards and uh, police officers in schools, all of these ways in which minority communities are being targeted 
um, for surveillance and for uh, incarceration. So there have been some interesting collaborat collaborations there. Um, and then I think just in terms of supporting minority candidates, Stacey Abrams' campaign is super interesting in that she had a lot of support from immigrant rights groups and black groups um, and unions and uh, you know other kinds of coalitions coming together to get out the vote and campaign for her. And I don't think, I mean, maybe now it seems obvious, but I don't think anyone thought a black woman had a shot at winning or coming even close to winning Georgia. And a lot of that came from the sort of coalitional grassroots organizing on the ground. So I think there's been a ton of grassroots work that has largely been unseen at the national level, but that I think could bear some really interesting fruit, not just in the South, but nationally. And to, to your point, before you, before Niambi, you go in, uh, the, what struck me about the Canton, Mississippi raids is from a labor organizing standpoint, that was ground zero for some significant black labor organizing within mm -hmm. the last decade or so. Yeah. And, and uh, Benny Thompson just had his, Congressman Benny Thompson just had his Policy Institute, um, annual Policy Institute a, a couple of weeks ago. And um, it seems like there was some conversation about the relationship between that raid and the Black Caucus, particularly given that Biddy Thompson has played a prominent role in the Homeland Security <laughs> Committee. So, yeah, I mean, that's my sense. So I'm, uh, my collaborator, Hannah Brown, and I are working on a project in which Mississippi um, is a big piece of our comparative study. And the oldest immigrant rights organization in the region is the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance. And that started in 2000 as uh, an effort to unionize immigrant casino workers when they were building riverboat casinos. Once they got that right to unionize, they called ICE the next day um, and removed tons of workers, not just Latin American migrants, but also Vietnamese, Jamaican migrants, and other folks. Um, and so it became clear to organizers in the state that you, uh, labor organizing was also an immigration issue. Um, and the Black Caucus has been heavily involved in supporting their work. It's a multiracial organization. They collaborate with the ACLU and the NAACP. And I'm 100% certain, though I haven't done my deep digging yet, that this was this raid was had everything to do with labor issues in the state and was as much an attack on immigrant workers as it was on labor organizers and African Americans in those communities. And there have been a number of statements by Black organizations in the state condemning the raids and trying to raise money and efforts, uh, legal support and all of that. So I think these issues, uh, white supremacy is like, is universal, right? So though it's not surprising that they're treating these issues as entangled and it behooves black people who already were aware of this to sort of engage politically on those grounds. Naomi, did you want to add comments? Um, so I think Jennifer pretty much summed it up, but I do think education has actually been one of those areas where we've seen some powerful organizing. And I think, you know, looking at state and local uh, politics is far less sexy in some ways, right, because it doesn't receive a lot of the fanfare. But that's where we've seen a lot of the movement happening is in state and local communities, uh, particularly when you're talking about groups of people who may not necessarily want to be seen by the state, right, um, for whatever reason. So I think you see it, whether it's in the South, but also in places like New York, where um, black and Latino communities are, are organizing around things like school underfunding um, and are thinking about school choice in particular kinds of ways, um, that you've seen some some really useful um, kinds of, of, of change there. I mean, um, just in 2010, right, where you had significant efforts um, in black and Latino communities to make sure these folks filled out the census, for example, right, for representative purposes, and even thinking about um, civic participation, right? So you saw that um, uh, the uh, National Coalition on Black Civic Participation working um, with the Lawyers Committee and the Election Protection Project and creating forms um, for black and Latino communities to kind of come together. Um, and I think the Congressional Black Caucus, to their credit, have sort of been um, on the national level, at least, very vocal, not just about 
Latinos, but about immigration, period, right? I mean, one of the sort of more significant things I think that the Congressional Black Caucus did, um, even though they haven't really gotten a lot of credit for, was addressing Haitian refugee policy um, in the U.S. in the 1980s, right? Mm -hmm. So they have clearly had some very strong statements um, about um, immigration for a really long while, and this isn't a new area. Now, I think the question is whether these kinds of coalitions become permanent. I think that's what people want to see, right, is that these coalitions are these sort of permanent alliances. But I think one of the things that has become abundantly clear from all of our research, but also just if you have eyes, right, is that these kinds of coalitions shift um, over time. They're dynamic things. Um, and so even where we see these coalitions, I'm sure if we look in another five, ten years, they're going to look different, right? I don't know that the Black Latino Coalition in Wisconsin that made sure Scott Walker wasn't reelected is going to be in play, right, um, in, in 2020. We don't know, in part because none of these things are self-actualizing. It actually takes people to bring people together. And it also takes those same uh, kinds of efforts to hold them together, um, after these moments and to be able to re-energize them when these things go fallow or dormant. Of course, elections are great ways to do that. Workplaces are great ways to do that. Uh, uh, school are great ways to do that. Um, it just remains to be seen whether these coalitions are, are more than single issue and if they are going to be able to be mobilized again over time. And then um, whether they even see themselves as necessary at different points. Um, I mean, I think coalitions are um, something that we value, I think, ideologically. I'm thinking about the shared minority status literature, right, that we all recognize that we have similar blues, right? Um, but if a group doesn't see itself as needing to be a part of a coalition, if it can actually do the work that it wants to do without others, how does that influence whether these coalitions form um, and when they do and how long they last? Uh, and, and you get into my last question, um, and, and Niambi, you may want to add to this, and Jennifer, I want to get your viewpoints. I'm trying to get a sense of what's going to happen when the Trump era ends um, in the next five years. How, how are black attitudes going to evolve towards immigration? Are, 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 is what we're seeing, um, particularly among black elites, um, an anti-Trump uh, kind of solidarity, solidarity alliance with with um, immigrant communities, or is this kind of solidarity, this alliance, these solidarity alliances, are they going to last? So what do you think is going to happen in terms of black attitudes towards immigration? I'm thinking in particular because, you know, the Obama administration, for example, um, ups and downs regarding immigration. He had a, mm -hmm. a deportation policy that was problematic, um, and, then, and then he had DACA. Uh, what's not as well talked about with DACA is that some of the early conversations regarding DACA came about um, in part due to conversations between immigrant rights activists and actually um, kind of older black leaders, civil rights leaders in particular. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out what, what, what should we expect in the next five or 10 years when it comes to evolving attitudes in the black community regarding um, immigration, particularly undocumented immigration. Well, I mean, I think it depends, right? So elite motivations and the motivations of everyday people are different, right? People have fewer restrictions on what they can say, right, um, than, say, elites, right? Elites want to win re-election on all of that. That said, I actually don't think that this is all a reaction to Trump. Okay. If you look at the longer-term record of any of these organizations, you, can, you brought up this Congressional Black Caucus, but also if you look at the NAACP, they have been, quote-unquote, pro-immigrant for a very long time. And the same thing with black folks is that blacks have traditionally not organized around immigration, either pro or anti, in great numbers. And this does not mean that there are not pockets of blacks who are immigrants who think that that's an important identity for them and organize around them, right? We talked about the Black Alliance for Just Immigration earlier, and there are others, right, who have, have sought to, to build bridges um, with these organizations and with these communities. But typically speaking, immigration has not been, say, a top ten issue or top five issue for black folks that they've identified on any um, 
survey, right, in any systematic way. So I would say, though, that as long as white supremacy continues to influence black life chances and the life chances of everyone else, not just black folks, but Latino folks, white women, white men, um, then this issue we should expect um, black people to behave similarly, right? I'm not going to say the same because nothing stays the same. Context matters. But even if we looked across time, this has not been an issue that blacks have traditionally organized around. And even under the Obama years when Obama was enforcing the Secure Communities Project, right, um, blacks are critical of that process as well about the way that people identified. And so you had majority black cities like Washington, D.C., becoming a sanctuary in the 1980s under Marion Barry and continuing that, right, under Mayor Vincent Gray in the early, uh, in the mid-2000s. He reaffirmed um, the district's noncompliance with um, immigrant detainers, right? Um, and I think that's an important signal to send. So if we are looking at the sort of longer history of black folks, I don't think we'll see some sea change uh, of black people saying that they're in favor of um, more restrictions policies, particularly about the detention of children, right, and the separation of families, because that is a very intimate story that black people are all too familiar with. And I think while white supremacy is such powerful um, an important way that people are organizing and selecting their preferences is because black people understand all too well that white supremacy is a cancer. And it doesn't just stop at one group or one community. So if we are co-signing policies that are dangerous, like child separations, like saying things like you should never have the opportunity to be a citizen regardless of the taxes you pay and the ways in which you contribute, um, to your community, to your to your locality, um, then we are also signaling that we want those things taken from us. And not to say that they've ever really been granted in whole. This is not to suggest that. But if we're talking about the work that white supremacy does, white supremacy needs to feed constantly. And if it's on immigrant communities, it's also going to be on black communities. So sort of, sort of, sort of saying, so goes my community, goes those others. Because mass incarceration doesn't just hurt black people, right? It hurts these, also these other kinds of communities as well. And it's motivated by much of the same processes, right? And so I think I wouldn't expect that much to change in the wake of the Trump years, perhaps maybe people becoming more strident and more ardent um, in the needs to protect these kinds of, 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 of communities, right, these most vulnerable of us, because this is the kind of stuff that makes it easier, right, for people to take your child under DCFS, right? These are the kinds of things that makes it easier to penalize, um, you know, you know, really poverty, right, when, when schools don't feel like your kids um, are worthy, right, of, of, of a free lunch if you can't afford to pay, right? I mean, we saw this in, in Pennsylvania over the summer or early part of the summer, right, where the local um, school board person said, you know, send a letter home telling people that their children could be taken from them because they owed a school lunch bill. So I would say that if I have any expectation, it's probably going to be more of the same or people becoming more persuaded that these are the kinds of things that they need to perhaps organize around. So it's one thing to say, I don't support these policies and I support a more progressive regime. It's another thing to say, and now I'm going to advocate for those things in a more robust fashion and incorporate them into sort of a black political narrative, which I think is, is almost there, but it's not quite all the way there, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Jennifer, you get our last, uh, you get the last word. Yeah, I mean, I want to just co-sign everything that Nyambi said. I think that she's exactly right, uh, especially in thinking about the way that race works and the way that black people have always understood it that way. I think a lot about the pushback against birthright citizenship, which is not new, uh, but it is certainly in the ether in new ways. And birthright citizenship was a way to sort of tacitly amend for slavery and to make black people citizens. So the idea that immigration politics is not about black people, to me, is always 
has always been a misnomer. And I think in ways that black people have understood, right? The, the politics of who belongs and who is included and who is not has always either explicitly or implicitly referred to black folks. And so they need to be concerned about those issues and be careful regarding what kinds of policies they sign on to. Um, but I also think that immigration politics have always been a part of the discourse, not as sort of a primary thing, as Naomi has mentioned, but as something in the background to sort of understand how racial politics are working. And a lot of that has been local. Um, and we've seen people take it on as a primary issues when it matters. We see, saw a wave of black sheriffs elected uh, in North Carolina and throughout the South whose platform was essentially, I refuse to partner with ICE. Our goal here is to build good community relations and to shift the narrative on policing. And they're being punished for it by the Trump administration. Uh, the same thing is happening with sort of more uh, progressive district attorneys that have been elected. So I think that the sort of coalitional work has always been happening, as Naomi has said, mostly at the local and state level. Uh, we just haven't really been paying attention to it, in part because immigration only rarely becomes a sort of huge national issue. Uh, and I also don't know that Trump, the end of the Trump era is going to mean that we will have resolved the issues. I think we might adjust our language some, but a lot depends on who is elected and who is invited to have a seat at the table. And I suspect that there will still be an ongoing need to struggle for uh, minority voices, Black, Latino, immigrants, and otherwise to be involved in that process. And some of the things that Joe Biden has had to say about immigration are concerning. Some of the things he's had to say about mass incarceration are concerning. So I think the same people <laughs> are going to have to continue to do that kind of work. I don't think those issues are going to go away anytime soon. And I suspect as long as immigration remains racialized, as long as non-white people are sort of relegated to a second class or worse status, there will probably be a need for this kind of organizing. And I'm certain that black people may have a bit, a bit more clarity about the necessity of that kind of work than other groups maybe who haven't been here for the long durée of, of white supremacy. Well, Jennifer and Niambi, I thank you for joining this podcast. I thank you for your insight, your perspective and your wisdom. And congratulations to the both of you on producing must-read books. My hope is that these books will get in the hands of not just those of us in the academy, but also policymakers and activists, because they offer unique perspectives on how immigration uh, operates, not only in the Southern context, but operates in relationship to African-Americans and African-American politics. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. It was great to be here.